Amen. Let's continue to worship the Lord uh, through reading and hearing his word. Let's pray. Father, you are exalted. Holy Spirit, you are exalted. Jesus Christ, you are exalted. The only God, immortal, invisible, all-powerful, sustainer of all things. We worship you. We turn our hearts and our attention now to your word and pray that even in this word that you would be lifted up, that you would be exalted, that we might be changed having encountered the living God. And so, Father, I pray to that end, that as your word is preached and read, that this would not be about me or about us, but it would be about you, that we would gaze upon you and your beauty, even this hour, and that you would change us. And so I do pray for your people and for myself that you would meet with us today for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to pick up in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. So forgive me if I get Nehemiah and Ezra confused. We're kind of moving into a new book. So I'm going to try to make sure I use their names accordingly. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but the sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. But why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, it lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I might rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let also letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And also another letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Amen. If you've ever traveled anywhere, then you know that that journey can be wrought with difficulty. Give you a few examples. A few years ago, I had to go to Denver by way of Dallas. And so my flight, it said that my flight would leave Jackson at 5.58. And it said that I would make it into Denver around noon. And so my dad, as usual, he kind of picks me up and he's there like an hour early and he makes sure that I get to the airport on time and had no trouble checking in, had no trouble getting there, had no trouble on that first leg of the trip. But as soon as we touched down in Dallas, there was a massive ice storm. And so we were grounded in Dallas for 12 hours. 
And so this flight, I should have gotten into Denver around midnight, I mean around noon, it ended, I ended up getting into Denver around midnight. And that's awful, right? When that kind of stuff happens to me, like your pastor and his unsanctified self, <laughs> like it just kind of makes me irritable, makes me anxious, it makes me just, I don't do well when, because my mind is set on getting to where I need to be. And so any interruption in front of that, it just kind of, it just messes with me. But there are other instances in which you're trying to make this long journey. Maybe you got to drive and you're like me, you have kids. And I I always underestimate how long it's going to take me to get out of the house. So, I mean, we we tell my in-laws or we tell anybody, we'll be there at this time. And man, it's like we're leaving Jackson like two hours late. Like I forgot to gas up the night before. Or, I mean, we were halfway out of Jackson and you forget that you left something at the house that you need, so you turn back around. Or, baby, can we swing by Kroger real quick? I need to get us some snacks. Or, well, man, we're at it. I might as well stop by Cups and get me some coffee. <laughs> and like that line is like out the door the one day that you need to be getting on the road. And that, that first hour, like, it's just awful. Like in the car, we're kind of biting at each other. Just, it just, you know, let's be honest, right? And once we get on the road, we're fine. But you just have a hard time leaving, right? I think travel does that. And if we're honest, it it takes this emotional toll on us. Now, the reason I start this way with these two uh, analogies is because uh, I think they're indicative of the differences that Ezra and Nehemiah share as they travel. Now, I think when you read Nehemiah 2, that it's tempting to say that this sounds just like Ezra. And actually, it doesn't. It's really, really different. Give you a few examples. Ezra is leaving from Babylon and not Susa. Susa is 300 miles east of Babylon. So Nehemiah has farther to travel, first of all. Secondly, Ezra 7, it's written from a third person perspective. When you look at Ezra, it says that Ezra, this man of God, that he set his heart to study, he set his heart to obey, and he set his heart to teach. And so it's, it's written as if this, someone else is writing it about Ezra. And then the bulk of Ezra chapter 7, I think it's easy to forget it, it's actually a letter. And so you get this letter that Artaxerxes, who's the same king when Nehemiah leaves, he writes a letter. And so all of Ezra chapter 7, if you think about it, it's a letter. This is a letter that Artaxerxes wrote. And then, so it's not personal. There, is, there seems to be no sort of intimate connection between Ezra and, and Artaxerxes, and I'll get to this later. And then Ezra chapter 8, it's like him getting stuck in an airport in Dallas, right? That he set on going to Jerusalem, he, he breezes out of, Jeru- I mean, out of Babylon with ease. He gets this letter and he gets out. He starts to hit all of his troubles mid-journey. He tells us in Ezra chapter 8, he tells us who travels with him. He says men. He gives you the family names. He gives you the number of men that's traveling with him. He tells you who's not there, the Levites, that somehow in going with all of these people, no Levites go. So then they get to this river, the Ahava River, and they have to turn back around and go get more Levites. And that takes time. And then when they're about to go and, and start the second leg of the journey, They realize that they got $144 million worth of silver and gold with them, and they don't have armed guards. And so right there, he calls this fast that the hand of the Lord would get them there safely. And so Ezra did, I mean, he he dedicates an entire chapter just to telling us 
how difficult it was for him to get to Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah is different. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Whereas Ezra gets a letter, Nehemiah gets two letters, but you know what? Nehemiah never tells us what those letters are. Whereas Ezra is more impersonal, it's third person, Nehemiah is like, this is happening to me, that I and my show up 26 times in this, oh, the chapter that I just read, 26 times it's I and me and my, it's a bird's eye view into what's happening to him, him as a guy that's leaving. The next thing you see is, if you read Ezra, uh, Nehemiah chapter two, verse one, he's in the king's palace, and if you go down to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9, like, like it's, it's crazy. Look at it. And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. Go down to verse 11. And so I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. You know what Nehemiah leaves completely out? And he has farther to travel. He tells us nothing about what it was like to travel from Susa to Jerusalem. He says, hey, that is not important. How I got there, it, I, I got there with ease. You know what he zones in on? What happens over the course of four hours in the temple of Artaxerxes? And you know what he was saying? I had no trouble getting to Jerusalem. My trouble was getting out. Ezra got out easy and he had trouble mid-journey. Nehemiah, getting out was hard. Getting there was easy. And you know what he does by, by locking us in on this beautiful encounter? He's showing us this emotional toll that leaving Susa is having on his soul. And I want to be really careful and I want to honor him and what he wrote. Notice that he talks about being sad. Notice he talks about being afraid. He says, I, I feared for my life. In other words, this is not impersonal. This is a man on a mission and in following the Lord and leaving Susa, this place that would have been beautiful and safe and secure to follow the Lord and to go over there to travel to Jerusalem because God's name had been tarnished and God's city was degraded and God's people were living in shame. What he is saying is the toll, the emotional toll that it takes on me to leave where I am, to go and be obedient to the glory of the Lord and the good of God's people. It's taxing now, what was Nehemiah consumed with? He said it in Nehemiah chapter one. The city of God is in shambles, and this is the city where God says his name will dwell. And so in Nehemiah's mind, the dwelling place of God is in shambles. Well, what else is in shambles? And the people, the people are in a state of shame that that is what's guiding him and pushing him to leave. It's the glory of God, and it's the name of God, and it's the people of God, that those two things together, that is what's pulling him out of this place that's pretty comfortable and pretty lavish. Now, here's the question. 
what does this mean for us? Is God saying, hey, pack it up, leave America, go to Jerusalem? Is that the way we apply this? No. Well, maybe. I'm going to say no, but maybe. If you were here last week when Dr. Duncan preached on John chapter 4, I'd invite you to go listen to it. Primarily around this issue of worship. In John chapter 4, Jesus has to pass through Samaria. And in that day, Jews did not have to. As a matter of fact, they avoided Samaria because Samaritans were unclean. But the text says that he had to pass through there because the Father was seeking worshipers. Now, here's the thing. In that dialogue with the Samaritan woman, you remember what happened? When Jesus starts to tell her about her husbands and her lifestyle and the fact that she's worshiping men and her incorrect vision about worship of God is skewed and therefore it's, something's wrong. When Jesus starts to unpack this, she says, whoa, I perceive that you're a prophet. Well, our people say that we worship on this mountain and your people, the Jews, you say you worship in Jerusalem. And you know what Jesus says? We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. You know what he says, though? But the day is coming. Or you will neither worship the Lord on that mountain or in Jerusalem. The Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And in one sweeping verse, you know what Jesus does? He basically says this, Jerusalem was the place. The Jews were God's people. You used to have to go through a temple and you used to have to go through a priest and you used to need the sacrifices of bulls and goats and rams. That is past tense. That's what we did back then. But the day is now coming and is now here where you will enter to the presence of God through me. I'm the new lamb. I'm the new priest. I'm the new Jerusalem, right? So here's what it means. And guess what? The people of God is not confined to the people in Israel. That's why I had us read Ephesians chapter 2. Well, God is making this new man out of two through Jesus Christ. Well, all this hostility and rules and laws and ordinances that guided the way the Old Testament worked, the Bible says Jesus is the new thing. So what does that mean for us? I, th I think it's this, that in the way that Nehemiah is consumed with the glory of God and the good of the people of God, so much so that he would leave, that might it be that the Lord wants us right now on this side of the cross, the finished work of Christ, might he be calling us to that same type of passion for his glory? that passion to see his name worshiped and praised, that passion and, and burden for people, God's people, God's elect, those whom God has called to himself, might he be saying in the same way that this guy in the Old Testament cared about Jerusalem and cared about the Jews, might God be calling us to care not about Jerusalem, but about the gospel? Might he be calling us to care not just about the Jews, everyone. You name a person, you name a tribe, 
You name a tongue. You name a language. You name it. And Jesus says, I want to be worshiped there. You name a place. I will send you to the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth. Every little nook and cranny on this planet is his. Might he want us to look at this and say, man, should that not be our heart? Having been rescued by Jesus. I think it is. And if we're honest, to pursue the lost, to care for God making all things new in this life, to have a burden for the worship of God, to care and to want to see people reconcile to their creator, guess what? It's going to take you through moments of sadness, which is the first point. A time to be sad if we're going to care about the glory of God and the good of the people around us. You will be sad. That when you look at our text, you realize that Nehemiah was sad and he was actually sad for a very, very long time. Now, look at it with me. When you look at chapter two, verse one, he says, now we're in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of the king of King Artaxerxes. So right there, that's a, a, a chronological marker. Now, you go back over when you look in Nehemiah chapter one, look at what it says in verse one. Now, this happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year when I was in Susa, the capital. So what's happening is there is is. Chislev is November, December in the Jewish calendar, which is Nehemiah chapter one. Nehemiah chapter two is in the month of Nisan, which is technically speaking March or April. So we're talking about three to five months later. When we talked about Nehemiah two weeks ago, we were here. We're three to five months later, right? And look at what it says. When wine was before the king, in verse 2, I took up wine and gave it to him. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, but the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but the sadness of heart. You hear what's happening? When Nehemiah got word what was happening with Jerusalem and the people, he grieved. And we're five months later, and you know what he's been doing for three to five months? Just faking it till he can make it. He do, he's working for the king, putting his smile on, serving him and waiting on him. And he's doing this day in and day out, day in and day out of just trying to fake it. Notice what he says. I was not sad in his presence. Like he tells us right there, I did not show sadness in the front of the king. And then one day when the king is oiled up, he drinking, he full of it. He just, he, he sees, right? And I don't know if this is the Holy Spirit. We don't know what is causing this man to like see. But after three to five months of Nehemiah hiding it, he's sought out like the king sees. Now, here's the question. Why was he sad? Think about where he was. He was in Susa. 
This is the, the, the vacation capital in the winter for royal dignitaries. He was in the fortified city. He was in the capital in a palace with armed guards with a gate around it. He was as secure as anyone else on the entire planet could have been. Life was good. He had moved up the social ladder. He had made it, right? Mama, we made it, right? Like we made it, like he had succeeded. Any career goals that you would want in that day is to work for the king. Whatever the king eats, I eat. What you drink, I drink. Where you sleep, my living quarters are going to be almost as nice, right next door to you. Why in the world, with all of these worldly blessings, how in the world is this man? Why is he sad? He tells us in verse 3. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? It becomes obvious there, right? That there is more to him than just what he had personally secured, what he had personally accumulated. He deeply cared about the city and the people. Now, here's a question. Isn't like success and security, isn't that alluring? Like, if we're really, really honest, isn't it easy to be successful and to be driven and to be secure and to not care about anybody else who's suffering? That's the temptation all in the Bible about the love of money, right? The, the Bible, Jesus talks more about money than he does about hell, right? He is saying that this success and worldly success, be careful. It will ensnare you and make you think that this is your home, and it's not. Well, what is it that's guarding this man with all of this success? It's the word of God. When you go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, in his prayer, he prays Exodus and Deuteronomy. Like, he brings this cat named Moses up twice in his prayer. And he's basically saying, Lord, you have made a promise that these are your people. If your people walk this way, then good. If your people do not walk this way, we will be vomited out of the land, right? So he, he is steeped in the word. He works for the king during the day. And he's grinding in that word in the night. And the word of God is shaping him and giving him these priorities. Nehemiah, I know you're in Susa. I know you're blessed. I know your life is well. But what about my city? What about my people? What about my own name? That it's the word of God on him when he's in the palace of the king that's keeping him humble. Think about this image right here. Where is Nehemiah when he is sad? What's going on around him? You can talk back to me. What's going on around Nehemiah when he is sad? Where, what's there? He's at a party. The king is throwing a feast. And there's dancing and there's singing and there's drinking. That life is good. And in the middle of a party, when life is good, this guy is sad. See, this isn't the type of sadness where something happens to me and now I'm sad. This is the sadness when your marriage is good, 
when your health is good, when your career is good, when your devotional life is good, when everything good around you is going on, and then you're struck with sadness. Hasn't that happened before? And it happens like when you watch the news, where your life is like, it's good. Like, man, like things are really good right now. And then you see the news. And it's not a sadness because something bad is happening to me. It's sadness because God's name isn't being worshipped there. It's sadness because that dude is not walking in obedience and in relationship to the Father. It's sad because I'm around people who have every single thing that they want on the planet and they don't remember that we have an expiration date for our life, right? And so we go through life chasing and dreaming and doing and accumulating stuff and then we're right here in the middle and there's nothing wrong with success. I, I pray that God would bless every one of us, right? But this is a sadness in the middle of everything Nehemiah has where he sees that people aren't walking in fellowship with their God, where God's name isn't being honored and glorified. This is that type of sadness. And see, we don't know what to do with that, right? Because I think we're, we're like Nehemiah. Like, we hear things and we read things. Put your best self forward. Cheer up. Like, all of this stuff. I'm going to be happy all the days. And we don't understand that our Lord Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. We don't understand that this is the Lord of heaven who is on earth, who has power to raise the dead, but that he grieves when he looks out and he sees people who are like sheep without a shepherd. It's like Paul when he says that there is unceasing anguish in my heart for my people according to the flesh. Oh, Lord, that you would cut me off that they might be saved. Paul is saved. It's good. He's straight. And yet he's equally burdened. Do you know what it means, Christian, to live in that space where life is good for you? And yet you're sad because of what you see in the world, because of what you see in your family, because of what you see at the grocery store, because of what you see on the news, because of what you see in the newspaper, that your heart is breaking in the midst of your prosperity. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. You can have both. Be blessed and still be sad. And if you're not a Christian, I wanna tell you, this is what we feel. Our heart aches to see people not walking with their God. Our hearts break when you will not bow the knee to the, the Lord and Savior. Our hearts break at thinking about the eternity that you're forfeiting to know God now and be known by him now that we're breaking, that as much as I want us to be jubilant and excited and, and everything here can be praiseworthy, I want to save space for this church to also grieve. To grieve for our city. To grieve for the loss. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and broken 
If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one or no cause or not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round it with your hobbies and luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it up safe in a casket or coffin or your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airlessness, it will change and your heart will not be broken. It will become unbreakable. This is C.S. Lewis talking about the beauty of love and the fact that when you love well, you will hurt deeply. If we're going to pursue God and his glory and they're good, prepare for some sadness. If we're going to pursue God, his glory and his good, prepare for times to be afraid. In Nehemiah's pursuit for God's glory and the good of God's people, it led him into places that did not feel good. Look at the text. Nehemiah said, look at verse two. Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. Why in the world is this dude afraid? He just shared his feelings, right? Like, what's wrong with being honest and transparent? Here's what you got to know a little bit about the power culture in his day. And to get at this, you actually have to go back. All right. So in our English Bibles, if you turn after Nehemiah, you get to Esther. In the Hebrew Bible, Esther is before Ezra and Nehemiah. And the reason it's before is because it happened chronologically before the events of Ezra and Nehemiah. So Esther. All right. So. I think there are striking similarities between Esther chapter one and Nehemiah chapter two. I'll unpack it here shortly. But so Artaxerxes is the king when Ezra and Nehemiah both leave. Ahasuerus is the king in the book of Esther. Ahasuerus is Artaxerxes' father. And so what you have here during Esther's day, which was before Ezra and Nehemiah, you have Ahasuerus, who's the king. And look in Esther chapter one, the way it opens up, it opens up with Ahasuerus throwing this feast. It says, I'm going to read it just so you'll get the, the, the flavor of it. This king gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. He showed all the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for 180 days. And then he gave another feast for all the people in Susa, both small and great. And drinks were served in golden vessels and royal wine was lavished. And he issued this edict. There is no compulsion. Drink, drink, drink and do whatever you want. Right. That's in Esther chapter one. This cat throws a feast for 180 days. That's like that's like six months. What kind of money you got to just like throw a feast for six months and bring out choice wine for everybody, like just setting it out. Right. That that's how dude rolled. Like that's what he did. And it was for his glory, for his pomp, like like it, it says it. Now, here's the thing. In the middle of that feast, he summoned his queen, Queen Vashti or Vashti. And he is with, he's with all his dudes. And he says, go get Vashti, Vashti. And the Bible actually says she was a dime. Right. <laughs> like the, the Bible says that she was like easy to look at, lovely to look at. Right. So she was beautiful. I don't know. Like the, the Bible just says she was gorgeous. Right. 
And so his intention, I'm the king, I'm the man, let me parade one of my beautiful women out and let everyone look at her. Well, you know what? She says, no, I'm not coming out. You're not going to look at me today. <laughs> and so the king, this is Artaxerxes' father, he gets upset. He was like, well, what do I do, man? She's making me look bad in front of all of y'all. And so one of his men says, this is what you do. You tell her she is banished from your presence forever, that she will never lay eyes on you again. And that's what they did. And you know why they did it? Because the man said, hey, if, she, if, if, if the queen disrespects the king, how do you think our wives going to act? We ain't going to have no respect in the house, right? <laughs> that, that's like my, my loose translation of what's happening, right? <laughs> And so he passed the law. Vashti cut her off. She out. Done. And that's when he did this beauty pageant, right? For Esther and for all the women. And then guess who wins? Esther, a Jew. A Jew of all people, a Jewish woman in his kingdom becomes the queen. Well, then Mordecai hears about this plot to kill all of the, all of the Jews. And so what does he do? He says, Esther, hey, you the king. You got to go talk to the king. You're the queen. You got to go talk to the king. Tell him not to kill us. And you know what Esther says? Are you crazy? Don't you see what he did to Vashti? He going to cut me off, right? And he says this, do you not know that there is a law that you do not go into the king's quarters during the king's feast unannounced? that the penalty for that is death, unless the king holds out his golden scepter. Now, this happened before Nehemiah in the same city. You see why he's afraid now? You see why he's afraid? That is the power culture in that day. You don't walk into a king's feast talking about how you're feeling. <laughs> you don't walk into a king's feast when he is drinking and it says the queen was next to him. He got women and he got wine. You don't walk in there and embarrass this king. You don't bring your stuff up with this is his day for his glory, right? That's why he's afraid. Worst case scenario, he's a dead man. Best case scenario, he's demoted and put into prison. This does not look good for Nehemiah. That's why he's afraid to even talk about that to this king. And this type of fear, if we're honest, will eat us alive. Have you thought about that? That if I say something to my boss, it might mean that I lose my job. I'm not saying don't, don't go lose your job. I'm not saying that, right? But if I go do this, it might cost me something. I think that's the point. It's costing him something to speak up. It's costing him something to care about the glory of God. He is in a position where it's not safe. Now, what is it that draws us out of this fear of man? The fear of God. You see, this isn't the first time fear is used in Nehemiah. It's used in chapter 2 about this man. 
but go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, look at verse 11. Now, I know I got y'all going a lot of places in the Bibles, but I think that's actually good. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who is this man? It's the king. But do you see what's happening? Lord, give your servant favor. I delight in to fear in your name, and therefore this king, he is powerful. But you know what? Buddy is a man just like me. He's going to die just like me. He needs oxygen from you just like me. What can he really, really do to me? You see what his prayer is doing? That he's so in love and in reverence for his God that even though this fear that surfaces, and it's real fear, but it's swallowed up by a greater fear. Does this not sound like what Jesus says when he talks to his disciples in Matthew? Think about that passage. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep amidst of wolves, and you will appear before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And do not fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and cast your soul into hell. That's who you fear. When you are in the front of kings, you fear and reverence your God. That's the only thing that will swallow up the fear of man is to know that in the end, I will not answer to a man. I will answer to my God. Yes, you got it, buddy. <laughs> Do you see this? In the pursuit of God's glory and the good of God's people, He's put in situations where he's afraid, afraid for his own life, afraid for his security. And this isn't normal fear that I might just get murdered in a drive-by at random, right? This is that fear because I'm standing up for the Lord and it's a difference, right? This isn't just the fear that comes with living in a broken world. This is fear because I'm going to stand up and open my mouth. I know, man, like some of you may, the Lord may be calling to move into a neighborhood that might be unsafe. Fear is good. The Lord might be calling you to have hard conversations with people in power over you. Fear is good, you know, like th that's real. But I don't think the Lord would have us to so worship our peace and to so worship our comfort that we never, ever, ever in one single point in our life are pushed up against moments where we're afraid because what I say and might do might bring offense to me. I think what we're seeing in Nehemiah is that if we're going to pursue the good of people, and the good of God's glory, be ready to step into places and situations that are terrifying. The third thing is a time to be bold. If we're going to press into this beauty of God's name and the worship of his name and the good of people, we will necessarily have moments where we have to be bold. 
Look at verse four. And the king said to me, what are you requesting? Like, think about that. Like, it's time for him to put up or shut up. It's time for him to either hey, tell the king what you want or go sit down and be a cupbearer, right? And you know what happens? The floodgates open up. He makes four requests. Look at what it says in verse five. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight and you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's grace. So first of all, send me. Look at the next thing that I may rebuild it. And then, King, while you're at it, will you please give me a letter to the other governors that they'll let me pass through? And oh, yeah, give me another letter for Asaph, who runs your whole forest so that he will give me wood to make beams and a wall and a house that I shall occupy. Wait a minute. You want a house? You want me to give you wood to build a house? How long you plan on staying there, Nehemiah? Twelve years. You go to Nehemiah 13, he stays there 12 years. That is how bold this man is. I want the kitchen sink. I want everything you got. And it's not even what he's asking for. That's, if you go back to Ezra chapter 4, you'll notice that this same Artaxerxes wrote a law that stopped them from building the wall. So what Nehemiah is asking for is not just all of this stuff. He's asking Nehemiah, he's asking the king, and while you're at it, undo that law that you wrote that stopped us to build it. That's bold right there, right? Now here's the thing. How do you take a man who says, I fear for my life in verse three, and then you get to like verse five and he is like asking for every single thing. Like what happens, dude? How do you go from being afraid to being bold? It's one little line in there. And it's in verse five. Look, look at how it flows. The king said to me, I'm in verse four. What are you requesting? And right there in verse four. So I pray to the God of heaven. And then I opened my mouth. You see that? This ain't just human strength. This is not man-centered strength. Let me conjure up all of my strength. This is like, wait a minute. This dude can murder me right now. This dude can hurt me right now. But before I open my mouth, let me pray. And see, the emphasis here is not on what he prayed because he would have told you that. The emphasis is on the fact that God answered his prayer. And God's presence in God's spirit gave him what he did not have a verse prior to that. God's spirit showed up and this guy is trembling and afraid and he prays and God says, I hear this. I will tell you what to ask for. I will, I will soften his heart and you will get it. This boldness, right, is from the Lord. This boldness is from the Lord. If we're going to love God and love people, we're going to, have to be in situations just like this where you have to say and do hard things. And I know some of you wonder, where does that grace come from? I'm non-confrontational. 
Where does this grace come from? I don't know if I can say what I ought to say. Where does this grace come from? I tell you this, a few things haunt me, and here's one of them. That something happens to one of them right there. My wife, my son, my daughter, and my dad, I mean, obviously. (laughs) But one of my fears is that I get a phone call that my wife died in a car accident, right? Like, it, it like, it like haunts me to think about the fact that I might have to do this. Like, this is a reality. But you know, I'm, I'm reading this book by John Piper called Future Grace. And Piper does what only Piper can do, right? And he says this. There is grace that is waiting for you right there. When those hard moments in life comes that right now when things are good, we look and we say, I don't have what it takes to endure that. But then when that comes, Piper says, God gives you grace right then and there. And you don't know what it looks like or feels like back there, but your God is faithful because God has acted graciously on your behalf in the past on the cross of Christ. He has given his own son. How will he not freely give you all things? And so when you need grace to bury your wife, when you need grace to bury your kids, God says, I will give you grace in that moment to do it. It's the same thing. When you need grace to be bold, don't stay in your head and work up your feelings. When you get to being bold, God will get to giving. He will show up. Last thing, got to get us out of here. And giving grace does not promise that we'll be alive. When you look in the face of martyrs who die for their faith, God's grace to them was that they come home to him. And that is gracious. They can stand until the end and stand. But there are times When God's grace does not bring you home, it keeps you here. And that's what's happening to Nehemiah. He asked the king for all of this. And look at what it says at the end. And the king granted me what I asked him. This is.